My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to continue our series today, our summer series, Sticky Stories, which is really hard to say five times fast, so maybe try that later. Uh, But today, we are continuing our series by looking at the book of Judges, specifically Judges chapter 6. And we'll, there's, there will be a new sticker for today. If you've been around the last few weeks, you've seen the last couple of stickers. This was the one from week one, which uh, Genesis 3, after seeing that, like, can we all just be glad that they're not scratch and sniff, right? Um, oh my gosh, come on, guys. That was way funnier than most of the jokes in the video. But the point of these stickers, the point of the stickers is that our creative team thought it could be a really fun way to be, have a visual reminder of a biblical truth that we can carry with us, whether it's on our coffee mug, water bottle, laptop, or even somewhere else. So that's the point of the stickers. So grab one on the way out. There, there's no prize or anything for collecting all of them. Um, you just have to figure out where to put a bunch of different stickers. But today... As we get into Judges chapter 6, we are going to look at the story of Gideon. And Gideon is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament for a number of reasons. One, if you read Gideon's story at just a very surface level reading, it's a very inspirational story of what life can look like if you will trust God and if you'll be obedient. But if we look a little bit deeper at Gideon's story and we look at the whole thing, we realize that the book of Judges and the story of Gideon in particular is a mirror for you and I. Even though the events of the book took place more than 3,000 years ago, if we look close enough, we can see ourselves in, in this case, the, the character of Gideon. Because to borrow a phrase from Eugene Peterson, the scriptures are not just meant to be informational. They are meant to be formational. And so today, as we look at Gideon, I hope that you'll slow down and take a look at yourself as well and see where you fit into the story and how your life is similar to his. But before we get there, will you take just a second and pray with me over today? Gracious God, we acknowledge that you are the father of all creation and that you are a a good, gracious, and unchanging father. And so Lord, I pray that today as we look at Gideon and we look at his character and we look at the way you, you are in control of his story, that you will show us the the areas of our lives that we need to submit to you and that your word will do what you set it to do in our hearts, God. It's in your precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. All right, now, before we jump right into Judges 6, I want to set the stage for what it is that we're going to see. Because the book of Judges, if you don't know, takes place after the nation of Israel has been liberated from slavery in Egypt. And it takes place after the nation of Israel has wandered in the desert for 40 years. And so by this point in their history, they have moved into the land that God promised Abraham hundreds of years before in the book of Genesis. And as they moved in, or just before they moved in, rather, look at the, some of the last words from Moses. He said, keep his, uh, keep his decrees and commands, which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land your, in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. These are some of the last words from one of the greatest prophets and leaders that Israel ever had. But what we see in the book of Judges is that the whole nation became complacent with the ways of God and began to conform to the patterns of the nations around them. Specifically, they adopted the false gods and the immoral worship practices of these other nations. 
And because this happened more than once, every time this happened, God would allow the nation of Israel to be overrun by these other nations. Because the fact of the matter is, God had called Israel, he had chosen Israel to live a different kind of life, to live differently, a a holy, set-apart kind of life, in order to show these other nations what God himself is really like. And so whenever they would wander from the ways of God and they would begin to act like these other nations, God would allow these other nations to overrun. But because God's character is unchanging, he still loved the people of Israel and they were still his chosen people. And so every time, in time, God would send a way for them to be saved. He would rescue and redeem his people. And this cycle plays out on repeat throughout the entire book of Judges. In fact, most Bible scholars call it Israel's sin cycle. But I once heard another pastor call it God's redemption cycle. And while these two things more or less say the same thing, um, honestly, I prefer the second way of saying it. Because it takes the focus off of Israel's negative, sinful act and puts it on God's unchanging love and his unchanging character. And so as we get into Judges chapter 6, we are entering the story at the lowest point in the cycle. For years by this point, the nation has been invaded by a group of people called the Midianites. And their practice is that they would come riding in on their camels and they would take any recently harvested grain or produce or anything else that they wanted. And this had been going on for years. And as you can imagine, that takes both a financial toll on the nation, but also an emotional toll on individuals. So in verse, but in verse 11, we meet the man that God chose to deliver his people. It says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. I want to stop right there for just a second because what happens when we first meet Gideon tells us a lot about the state of the nation and Gideon's current state of mind. You see, when we meet Gideon, he is threshing wheat in a wine press. And you and I read that some 3,000 years later and in a time, in a place where we don't really grow, harvest, or grind our own grain. Like, I make sourdough bread, but I get my flour from Costco, okay? I'm not hooking my dog up to a millstone in the backyard to grind kernels of wheat, at least not yet, okay? And so we need to slow down a little bit and look at what it, me- look at what it means to thresh wheat and where Gideon is doing this. Because to thresh wheat, you need three specific things. You need a pile of prepared wheat, some sort of pitchfork, and wind, Okay, and the idea is that when you got all three of these things in the same place at the same time, you would take your pitchfork and start tossing the prepared wheat and the wind would blow away all the stuff that you don't want, all the stuff that you can't use, and the heavier, heavier kernels of grain would fall back to the ground, making it a lot easier to clean up, to grind, and, and actually use. And generally, this is done on a hilltop or a wide open space with the entire community around. You, you would be able to see people doing this from a long distance away. But when we meet Gideon, he's doing this in a wine press. 
And the thing about a wine press is that you're not going to get the wind necessary to blow away all that chaff, to blow away all that stuff that you don't want. So what we see Gideon doing here is essentially threshing his wheat, tossing his wheat in the air in the deep end of an empty pool. Excuse me. And so this gives us a glimpse into Gideon and the state of Israel because we see that Gideon is so afraid and the whole nation is so afraid that they're hiding everything they can so that it won't be taken. And Gideon himself is hiding in a hole, literally hiding in a hole with his pile of wheat and a pitchfork. If you've ever seen or ever wanted to see a picture of uh, a futile exercise, absolutely pointless, this is it. And so this messenger who seems to be an embodiment of God shows up and calls Gideon a mighty warrior, which sounds humorous when you realize that this guy's so afraid he's put himself in a hole just to hide from the Midianites. But look at Gideon's response in verse 13. He says, uh, pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And so here's Gideon, full of fear, hiding in a hole, talking with God. And he starts to ask the question that all of us ask one time or another. God, why is this happening to me? And I'm guessing most of you have probably been there. I know I've been there a time or two. When a hard season of life hits or something unexpected, unexpected comes about and you start asking the question, God, if you love me, why did you let this happen? Why did you let my job be eliminated? Why did you let the relationship fail? Why did you let that medical diagnosis come? And we start asking all these questions of God, like, why this? Why that? Or maybe you've been in one of those seasons, and rather than asking why he let it happen, you've asked, God, if you really are for me, why won't you provide what I need right now? Why do you keep letting this happen? Because it would seem that a simple answer to our question why would be all that we need, or it would seem that a simple act of provision by the creator of all things would solve our problems. So can it be frustrating sometimes when we're in those scenes and we're asking God why time after time after time, and we get, it seems like we get no response. He just seems silent. Or sometimes... What feels even worse is when he leans in and asks us a question, when he looks at us and says, do you trust me? Because if we look at Gideon's conversation here, we realize that God didn't say, hey, why don't you trust me? And he didn't say, just do what I'm telling you to. God saw Gideon stuck in his fear, hiding in a wine press, and he says, go in the strength that you have. Because God knew that what little strength Gideon may have had, it was more than enough for God to deliver his people if Gideon would trust him enough to be obedient. 
Look, I'm not saying that when life is hard, choosing to put your faith and your trust in Jesus is automatically going to make everything better and easier because most of the time it doesn't work that way. In fact, in the book of John, Jesus tells us you will have trouble. But if we will choose to put our faith and our trust in Jesus and who God says he is, it gives us the strength of someone else to lean on. Or better yet, it gives us someone else to live inside of us if we've submitted to the lordship of Christ. And so when you find yourself asking that question, those why questions of God, do you, do you tend to lean on your own strength? Do you try to forge your own path and make your own way and solve your own problems? Or do you choose to rely on the strength of God? and trust who it is that he says he is in his word and that his Holy Spirit does, in fact, live in you. You see, as Gideon was stuck in his fear, he starts talking about why he's not qualified to deliver Israel, why he's not qualified to lead, because he's the youngest member of his family in a small clan in one of the smallest tribes in the entire nation. And rather than debate Gideon, rather than cite all the reasons that Gideon actually could do this, God leans in just a little bit more and says, I will be with you. And God promises his consistent presence. And for those of us who have placed our hope, placed our faith in Christ, that same promise still stands for all of us. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, surely I will be with you always until the very end of the age. So one of the key themes that we see when we look at Gideon's story is God's consistent presence and his consistency in fulfilling his word. But one of the other major themes that we see in Gideon is that God will use unexpected means to overcome apparent problems. God chose fear-filled Gideon for a very specific reason. But before Gideon could lead an army, he needed to confront his family. Jump down to verse 25, where it says, that same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of this height. Using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So just a matter of hours after Gideon and God have this conversation at the wine press, God starts to deliver his people from their oppression. But what we see here is that God would, uh, before God would drive out the foreign invaders, he wanted to deal with the imposters. And what I mean is that God chose to deal with the heart of the issue before he would deal with their current circumstances. Because despite what Gideon thought, the biggest issue in Israel was not foreign invaders, it was misplaced affection. Look, the very first commandment that God gave Moses on Sinai was you shall have no other gods before me. Because God knows that where we place our affections has a direct impact on our lives and the lives of those around us. And by this point in the book of Judges, Israel had once again 
walked away from the ways of God and conformed themselves to the patterns of the people around them. But I think if we're honest, if we really believe that Gideon's story is like a mirror, we have to ask the hard question of, don't I do the same thing? Don't we, don't we forsake the ways of God from time to time to follow after what our culture says? Because our culture tells us to be the absolute best, to strive for more, and to hustle until you're on the top. But Scripture tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all, with all of your strength. In essence, what Scripture tells us is to love the Lord your God with every ounce of your life. And as you grow in your love and affection for God, and as I grow in my love and affection for God, it should drive all of us to a deeper trust and a greater obedience. Because you see, God didn't waste his time with Gideon. He spoke to him in the day, and then that very night, he called him to tear down the idols that Gideon's own dad had set up in their town. And in all of Gideon's story, I think that verse 27 is hands down his most heroic moment. Because despite his fear, he chose to obey God instead of continuing to conform to the patterns of idolatry. And as far as we know, God never told Gideon that he was supposed to do this alone. And he never said that he was supposed to do it in the daytime. All we know is that God said, use this bull, tear down these idols, and then make an offering to me using the wood. And despite the fear of his family, despite the fear of rejection from his community, Gideon chose to take God at his word and be immediately obedient. It's a choice to follow our emotions or to follow our God. And you see, you and I, we were all created to be emotional beings. Emotions are very good things. Scripture speaks of all the emotions that God feels and he displays from anger to joy to sorrow to concern and so much more. And emotions are good and feelings are valid, but the truth of the matter is emotions are terrible decision makers. If every decision you make is based solely on how it makes you feel, you end up living your life according to what is right for you instead of according to what is right by God's standards. And the prophet Jeremiah in his book in chapter 17 tells us why emotions are terrible decision makers. He says, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, the fact of the matter is that only God can understand the heart. Only God can understand and only God can change our heart to reflect him. And so the reason that the night Gideon tore down these idols was his most heroic moment is because despite all of his fear that had come back to him from the wine press, he chose the way of obedience. And in one day, Gideon went from ineffectively threshing wheat in a wine press to beginning to deliver Israel from oppression. And so if there's any part of Gideon's story that you choose to emulate, let it be this. Let it be choosing to trust God enough that his way is best. Let it be putting aside your emotions as, your, as uh, the driver of your decisions, and let it be your trust in who God says he is to drive your obedience. 
According to Charles Spurgeon, uh, obedience is the highest practical courage. And the reason why is because obedience to God will always look different than what our culture tells us to do. Now, it would be great if Gideon's story just continued to follow this trajectory, right? That he just continued moving up and to the right, so to speak. But it's not long before Gideon uh, is taken hold of by his fear once again. And this is where we get to the part of Gideon's story that uh, if you grew up in church, you probably know. Um, maybe you don't, and that's okay. I'm going to lay it all out for you. But this is the part where we, we hear the story that we've heard multiple times, right? This is where we get Gideon's fleece, which is basically just the sheepskin that he used a couple different times to, got, to try to get a specific answer from God. And God, in his graciousness, accommodated uh, Gideon's request both times. And it wasn't until after Gideon had gotten his confirmation from God that God is who he says he is and that God will be with him that he then goes and raises an army to drive out the Midianites. Well, in just a few simple verses, he raises an army of 32,000 men, which is pretty good considering that we don't know if Gideon uh, sent word to the entire nation, but it seems like it's just the tribes right around them. But God takes a look at these 32,000 men. He goes, ah, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, but it's too many. If all of you go, you're going to think you did it in your own strength and not with me. So God tells Gideon, hey, tell anybody that if they're afraid, if they're afraid to go fight, they can just leave. No big deal. Just, just head on home, which is ironic because Gideon seems to be so afraid to do this. But in an instant, when Gideon does this, 22,000 people leave the army. And so it drops down to 10,000, which is still not bad, but this Midianite army is huge. And so God looks at it again and goes, ah, that's, that's better. That's closer, but it's still too many. So Gideon, I want you to go tell everybody, get a drink from this stream, and I'll show you which ones to take with you and which ones to send home. And so this is where we get this weird story of some guys kneeling down to drink directly from the, screen, from the stream, some guys using their hands to cup the water and bring it up. And honestly, a lot of people have spent way too much time trying to figure out why anybody did one instead of the other and how that matters, because the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter at all. This was just an opportunity for God to create a visual distinction for who he wanted Gideon to choose to take with him and who he wanted him to send home. What matters about this part of the story is that God himself is working out his plan in a way that will bring him the glory. And so after that, after, it's, uh, after Gideon's army is taken from 32,000 all the way down to 300, we realize that every step along the way, Gideon has had to display his trust and put aside his fear in order to be obedient. And so once his army is down to 300 men, the time is right for Gideon to attack these Midianites. And so on the night that it happens, God in his graciousness and understanding Gideon's heart and knowing the fear that he holds, gives Gideon just one more sign. He has Gideon and one of his servants sneak down and eavesdrop, spy on, whatever you want to say, to the Midianites where he hears the interpretation of a dream that says that all the Midianites are afraid of Gideon. And so Gideon goes back to camp and he, he comes up with this plan where he and his 300 men, men are going to hold torches, smash jars, blow trumpets, yell some uh, battle cry after they've surrounded the camp. 
And so when these 300 men surround this camp of 135,000 Midianites, and they do this, God created such confusion in the camp that every single one of the Midianites start attacking each other. And so that's where the torch and the jar come from on our sticker, because they're two of the most iconic parts of Gideon's story. But the, fa- the thing is, uh, as God created this confusion and they attack each other, Gideon and his men didn't, didn't seem they had to fight at all. But then as the Midianite army retreats and they run, they try to make it back to their own land, Gideon and his men chase him down. And then it ends up on the banks of the River Jordan. And it would be great if the story stopped right here, because if the story stopped right here, then God would have accomplished everything that he told Gideon to do. The, the people would have, uh, the Midianites would have been driven from the land. The idols have been dealt with. And their, the people's affections would have come back to God. But Gideon's story continues. And this time, without a word from God, Gideon chooses to cross the Jordan River in pursuit of the rest of the Midianites. Uh, Bible scholar um, Lawson Younger puts it this way. He says, as Gideon... Uh, The moment Gideon and his men cross the Jordan River, a whole new Gideon emerges. You see, Gideon crossed a line when he crossed that river. Gideon was no longer operating out of his obedience and his trust to God. He was operating out of his own desires because the minute he crossed the river, it was no longer about liberating Israel. It was about a personal vendetta. And as he crossed this river, Gideon starts to act more and more and more like the Midianites themselves. And so when all is said and done, when, uh, when Gideon has utterly defeated the Midianites, despite the fact that he's treating other Israelites like Midian did, the people of Israel come to him with an offer to be king. Look at chapter 8, verse 22 for Gideon's, um, for the rest of the story. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. They answered, we'll we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on the camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Aphra, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And there you have it. In Gideon's hometown, where Gideon went from the wine press to tearing down idols, Gideon starts the cycle all over again. Because while it seems like his refusal of the throne is a humble way of pointing people back to God, the truth of the matter is we've all heard a thousand times that actions speak louder than words. And what we see Gideon do just a few verses later is he takes on the lifestyle of a king. He does that by taking additional plunder, which he had no right to take. He does that by taking on additional wives a few verses later. And what we end up reading about Gideon is that he ends up with 70 sons. Now, this describes the lifestyle of a king. 
And so while Gideon refused the throne, he fully embraced the lifestyle of a king. And the, and the most telling thing about Gideon is the fact that he takes all of this gold and he makes an ephod out of it and he displays it in his hometown. Now, an ephod was just a religious garment and it's unclear from our text here how it was that it was used. But the result of making it and displaying it are crystal clear. Because this ephod that he put up where he had torn down idols became an idol itself. And I'm not saying it's all Gideon's fault that Israel went the way that they did, but it's pretty clear that despite all of his time talking with God, despite all of the signs that God gave him at his request, Gideon never gave his entire heart to God. And the way Gideon's story ends tells us that he continued to conform to the patterns of these other nations. And with the making of the ephod, Gideon effectively says, let's do it again. Let's just restart this cycle of misplaced affection. Another way that you could look at it is that as Gideon made and displayed this ephod, he followed the pattern that was displayed for him by his own dad, rather than following the pattern that God had shown him over the course of the rest of his story. And so this begs the question for you and for me, why does any of this matter? Well, it matters because Gideon's story, like we've said a couple times, is like a mirror. And if you lean in and you look close enough, you can find yourself. See, God met Gideon in a state of fear, hiding in a wine press, but he pulled him out and he took him down this path of greater trust. And God will do the exact same thing for you, for me. He'll, he'll find us in our mess, in our fear, in our anxiety, our insecurity, our frustration with him, our anger, our doubt, and anything else. And he'll call us by name into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But unless you give him your entire heart, you are bound to repeat the same cycle that Gideon and the rest of Israel did. You see, Gideon's story is equally inspirational and cautionary. It's inspirational because we see the truth that doubting people can be used by God, especially when they are obedient enough to let their doubts and their fears go. It inspires us to intentionally place our trust in the character of who God says he is and let that be the driver for our obedience. But it's also cautionary because we see what happens when we forsake the way of God for the way of the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Living in a way that does not conform to the patterns of this world means that you intentionally choose to do things God's way. It means that you choose to be obedient and pursue the things of God rather than pursue the things of this world. But it's not always easy to make that choice, is it? Yes, it's, it's easy to love God and it's easy to love Jesus, but it's not always easy 
to trust him, especially with what's right in front of us. It's easy to trust with eternity because it's abstract and we can't really grasp that. But when we're looking at bills and when we're looking at rejection from another university or uh, relational strife or medical tests, those can be the times when it's hard to trust. Or when we're afraid of rejection from friends, from family. Those can be the times that it's hard to trust. And that's why abiding in Christ is so vital for a fruitful faith. Because you see, continuing to abide in Christ daily, continuing to rely on his strength rather than ours, is choosing to trust that his way is best. And it requires that you set aside your sinful nature and put him in the proper place of Lord over your life. And sometimes we have to do this multiple times in a day. But if we will choose to do this, regardless of how many times we try to take the reins back, God is consistent to always forgive. He is consistent to always redeem. And so living a life of radical obedience for me means that I have to daily humble myself at the feet of Jesus. And as you and I, as we can focus on Christ and as we spend time with him in his word and in prayer and listening to him, because sometimes that's the hardest part is the listening. Our minds will be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we will start to look at this world the way God looks at the world. And we'll start to see people the way God sees people. But it all starts with obedient trust. I love the way Brendan Manning in his book, Ruthless Trust, put it. He said, you will only trust to the degree that you know you are loved. And as you and I live 3,000 years after Gideon, we also live 2,000 years after the resurrection. We live 2,000 years after the day of Pentecost when God sent his spirit. And because we know that God is consistent in his character and he does not change, we know that he will reside in us if we make him Lord of our life. Look, I'm not a big sticker guy. I'm not. I use them to cover up logos that I don't like on coffee mugs. That's about it. But the stickers have been made as a fun way to carry with you a visual reminder of biblical truth. And the truth from Gideon's story is that trust and obedience go hand in hand. And yes, there will be times when it is extremely difficult to choose to obey. But that's why trust is so vital. Because when you choose obedience, when you choose to trust God that his way is best, and you set your emotions aside, and you don't let them drive your decisions, you're choosing a life that is obedient to God, that will honor God, and will reflect his love and his character to others around you. And as you follow down that path of deeper trust and greater obedience, and another step right after another, it leads you into a deeper relationship with God. And so if Gideon's story is this mirror, what could look different in your life? What could look different in your family, 
your career, how you spend your time, how you use your finances. What could look different for you if you would choose to obediently trust God that his way is best? Or what would look different if radical obedience to God is what you chose over conforming to the patterns of this world? Gideon followed the pattern that his dad had set up. He set up an idol in the same place his dad did. But thanks to the grace of God and thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we don't have to repeat those same patterns. But it does require that we obediently follow after God. I don't know what area of your life that God is asking for greater trust or greater obedience. But I'm confident that there's something. I'm confident that there is a space in your life that maybe you're not intentionally holding back your trust and obedience or your affection, but I'm guessing that there is, there's one. And so this is my prayer for all of you is that as we go from this place in just a little bit, that God will reveal to you those specific areas. And that every time you look at the sticker, you'll be reminded to choose his way over the patterns of our world. We have no clue how Gideon's story might be different if he stopped at the banks of the Jordan River and went back home. But from the end of his story, we can tell, or we can maybe not tell, but maybe we can, um, we can look at the end of his story and we can decide that we're not gonna cross that line. We're not gonna cross the river to do what the world tells us to do. Gracious God, you are an unchanging father and you are constantly good. We've sung about your greatness today and we've seen how you used a ragtag bunch of guys to, to liberate a nation. But God, I believe that in this room, there are hearts that you want to liberate. There are hearts whose affections you desire. And so God, I pray that your spirit, as we go from this place, will speak clearly to all of us, that you will tune our hearts and our ears to the key of his voice and that you will strengthen our minds and our hearts to choose to trust you. I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and that we live in a time where the Holy Spirit will revive, will will live in all of us. So God, we put you on the throne where you belong. Pray that you rule over us in our hearts and our minds. It's in your precious, powerful, perfect, holy and unrivaled name that we pray. Amen.